Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 39. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no longer, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, would you bow with me for a brief moment, and let's, let's pray together. Uh, God, we thank you for this time. This time is precious. And even in the passage that we just read, uh, meeting together uh, is so important. And coming together for the sole purpose of giving you worship uh, is so vital for our souls. It's vital for the preservation of our souls. And even if we don't feel like anything is happening to us or anything is happening within our hearts, uh, we trust that your word is living. We trust that the spirit is alive and powerful. And we trust that even in this moment, you are doing something good within our hearts and building our faith and preserving our faith to grow in our trust in you. Uh, So we ask God as we hear the preaching of your word that uh, your word would pierce uh, our souls, that your word would uh, transform our thoughts, that your word would transform the desires of our hearts, and that we would come into your presence and experience the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit. In Christ, let me pray. Amen. You know, there's uh, several places in the book of Hebrews that are called warning passages, and these are the kind of passages that will probably sound a little bit harsh to the modern hearer, but they really are meant to be pastoral. And today, we're going to encounter one of these warning passages, and if you were following along as we read the passage, maybe you you heard a, a, a little bit of it, but as we've been saying in this series, this is a community that has been discouraged because they have been experiencing uh, some kind of hardships, hardships related to persecution. 
And therefore, some people in this community are in danger of falling away from the faith. And what the author wants to do in a very pastoral way is exhort them and encourage them and warn them to persevere in their faith and not fall away. Now, I think the best way to actually frame the tone of what we see in this passage is uh, probably the framework as a parent addressing a child. You know, as a parent, uh, I have to mix it up a little bit between exhortation, between encouragement, and between giving a warning to my children, and I use a a combination of these things. In fact, uh, because we are not settled in a home, uh, because we are staying with my parents, because my parents let my kids do whatever they want, uh, because summer camp is over, right, all of these things, uh, my kids right now are lacking in structure, and uh, I think our entire family is a little bit on edge. And so this morning, uh, even during worship time, I have my oldest daughter, and she's sitting in the front, and I'm using these three tactics to get her to uh, pay attention, worship, sit still, not look at herself in the mirror over there, right? And so in the beginning, I throw a little bit of encouragement. I say, I say you know, <coughs> uh, because it's recording, I'm just going to say daughter. I'm not going to say my daughter's name, right? I say daughter, right? Uh, think about all the things God has done for you. Think about the ways Jesus has loved you. This is our time to give thanks and to worship him, right? Didn't work. You know, I've seen you uh, worship and sit still uh, on Sundays before. I know you can do it, right? And try to give her a little bit of encouragement. Didn't work. And you know what I do finally? If you don't sit down right now, (laughs) after church, there's going to be some consequences, right? And it's a combination of all three of these things, exhortation, encouragement, and warning, And uh, I think parents will use these kinds of things to lead their children in the right way. I think what we see in this passage is kind of a similar fashion because you see all three of these elements. In the first part, you see exhortation. In the second part, you see a warning. And in the final part, you see an an encouragement. And what we're going to do today is, uh, I guess, systematically just go through each of these sections. Okay? Now, the first section is filled with exhortation. And specifically, there's three exhortations here. And you'll notice that these exhortations are actually based on what was said in the previous passage, and that's signaled by the word, therefore, in the beginning of verse 19, right? Therefore, in view of who Jesus is, in view of his sacrifice, therefore, respond to that by doing these three things. Now, what are the three things that the author is exhorting this community to do? First, you see it in verse 22. It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Okay, let us draw near. We can call this the worship or the devotional aspect of the Christian life in terms of how we respond to the gospel, how we respond to the work of Jesus Christ, whereby we actively seek to enter into the presence of God and enjoy our relationship with God in his presence. Now, let me say this. If you are neglecting this aspect of the Christian life on a regular basis and this becomes habitual, it is going to have severe consequences in terms of the quality of our faith. It's a little bit like being married to someone, but never going home to spend time with your spouse, never enjoying that relationship because you just say, I'm too busy doing other things. There may be some couples who can thrive within that kind of context and that kind of relationship, but my guess would be most people probably can't. And the danger of that kind of relationship is what happens if you never see the person, if you never spend time with the other person, your heart eventually, I think, starts to get a little bit cold towards the other person, and it creates this relational distance, right? Likewise, this exhortation is important because if we are not spending regular time drawing near to God in worship, in devotion, in prayer, what it's probably going to end up doing is creating some kind of relational distance. 
If you talk to any kind of believer, right, this could be a new believer, this could be somebody who has walked and followed Jesus for 40 years, I think they all say the same thing, right? They will say something to the effect of this. Um, I don't know what it is, but, you know, when I, when I spend time praying in the morning, things are, are just better. I just feel better, right? A new believer could say this, and somebody who has followed Jesus for 40 years can say this. There is something, maybe we can't scientifically show why, right, something changes, but there is something that changes spiritually when we do spend time with the Lord in devotion, when we do spend time in prayer and in worship. Uh, as our pastoral intern Mike mentioned before, some folks participated in the prayer march, and I hope some of us will get to share uh, testimonies about it in upcoming weeks. But uh, I think many of us came back and we felt a renewed perspective and a stronger faith. Now, why? Uh, I don't think it's because any of us are qualitatively better people, but I think on this prayer march, you just spend a lot of time drawing near to God. And that has a tangible spiritual effect on our souls and on our perspectives. Now, at the very least, here's what we have. We have congregational worship on Sundays. We have what we're doing here on Sundays. And it's an important function in terms of preserving our faith. Uh, we don't come to church be out of some kind of religious duty or because uh, we have to fulfill uh, a check mark in terms of what it means to be a Christian. That's not the ultimate reason why we come here and gather on Sundays to worship. If that is your reason for coming here, uh, my guess is going to be that coming here is a little bit burdensome and a little bit dreary to you. No, the reason why we come here and gather and worship together on Sundays is because as a community, we draw near to God together in our worship. And whether you know it or not, it plays a vital role in terms of shaping and preserving the quality of your faith. Okay, first exhortation, draw near. Second exhortation is in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And we're going to call this the believing aspect of the Christian life. Uh, not only is it important to uh, draw near to the Lord and experience his presence, but you also have to believe in the right things. You have to believe specifically in what we confess to be our ultimate hope. That's what it's talking about here. It's the doctrinal aspect of the Christian life. Now, the implication here is uh, what we believe in and what we put our trust in, it can be pretty elusive if we're not careful to hold fast to it. That's what the uh, concept of holding fast to the confession of your hope, right? Uh, when I was in high school, I used to have this like navy blue hat. And I really love this hat. And if you're into like baseball caps and things like that, I know style is different now and people wear like the flat caps. But back in the day when I was in high school, you, you spent a lot of time, right, getting your hat to be just right. You wear it, you shape the, the, the lid, the rim, and uh, you, 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 you know, you rub it in the dirt to get it soft and comfortable. So you spend a lot, a lot of time getting this hat to be just right. So I had this hat that I really loved. And uh, you know, one time I went to Six Flags Great Adventure, which is like an amusement park in New Jersey. And I went on this roller coaster. It's called Rolling Thunder. It's like a really old wooden roller coaster. There's no loops. It just goes up and down, up and down. And we were going on this one drop, and I forgot to secure my hat. I had my hat on. We were going down. Whoosh, right? My hat flew off. No. Right? I lost my hat. And uh, after the ride, I said, I should have held on to this hat tightly because it was valuable to me. Uh, I think that's what the second exhortation is kind of getting at when it says we need to hold fast to what we confess to be our hope. Why? Because life is actually like a roller coaster, is it not? There's a lot of highs, 
but there are also a lot of lows. And in the midst of that, the ups and the downs of life, you got to hold fast to what you put your hope in. Because the, the easy thing to do would be to let it go a little bit and to try to grasp onto your financial security, your uh, job security, uh, your, your status in the world, and all of these things. It's going to be easy to hold on to that and say, this is my hope. But in the midst of life, this pastor says, hold fast to what your hope is, to what you confess your hope to be, because that next gust of wind may be just around the corner. And lastly, in uh, the final exhortation, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, and we'll call this the community aspect of the Christian life. So draw near, right? believe, hold fast, and finally, uh, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Now, I actually spent a lot of time on this verse in the beginning of the year when we talked about community and started our community group. So I'm not going to say too much about this, but um, at the very least, I'll say this. Community is important. It's important for our faith. And once we disconnect ourselves from Christian community, and you'll hear the testimony of this from other people who you know, are struggling to find a church or belong to a community or are just away a lot because of various different reasons. Uh, once you are kind of cut off from a Christian community, uh, your faith, the quality of your faith begins to struggle because God created us to be in community and we need one another. We're created in the image of a triune God who himself is community within the Godhead. And therefore, uh, part of the Christian life, part of preserving our faith, part of perseverance is also to be committed to be in community. So those are the three exhortations. Now, we're moving on to... Uh, to what we might think as a little bit of the harsh part of the passage, and we're getting into the warnings. And the warning begins at verse 26, where the author gives a strong admonition and gives a little bit of a reality check. And you know, this is a part where the parent says, if you don't do this, there's going to be consequences, right? He says in verses 26 to 29, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. And then uh, moving uh, ahead a little bit, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Now, those are some, that's some pretty strong language, right? Trampling the Son of God underfoot, profaning the blood of the covenant, outraging the spirit of grace. The author is basically giving a little bit of a reality check here because what the author is saying is that uh, your reality right now of what you think, that maybe life would be better without Jesus, without following Jesus, maybe life would be better falling away and uh, uh, actually for them returning to Judaism, but for others maybe to just walk away from uh, Jesus entirely. The author is giving a little bit of a reality check and saying, okay, if you do this, this is what you can expect right? Don't mess with, don't mess with God <laughs> because, uh, again, reality check, life does not revolve around you, but life actually revolves around a God who is powerful and who is just. And if you go on sinning deliberately, which, uh, by the way, it doesn't mean committing sins in general, like the kind of sins that we struggle with, but uh, what it actually refers to is a sin that is actively rejecting God what the author is saying, then you are going to fall under the judgment of God as a consequence. Now you hear that, and I, I think I know how a lot of you know, modern New York people 
uh, would feel. Uh, something like this makes us feel a little bit uneasy, especially when a preacher starts talking about things like punishment and things like hell and things like God's judgment. Uh, but he, I think the reality of the matter is this. Uh, sometimes, one, if it's true, you've got to say it, but two, uh, sometimes we need a reality check because uh, apostasy, which means falling away, uh, I think one of the places where it starts is when we actually make ourselves bigger than God. It's when we feel like, you know, I've reached a higher level of enlightenment beyond the enlightenment that God gives us through the revelation of his word in the spirit. Uh, I have gone beyond that, and I am now at a higher level of enlightenment. Uh, it's when we think that life will be more free when we live according to our desires rather than God's desires. And, uh, of course, there are probably hundreds of reasons why people would reject God, and I don't want to oversimplify something that is probably uh, a little bit more complex. But I do think at the end of the day, the reason why uh, people will fall away is because we make ourselves bigger than God. We make our desires more important than God's desires. We make our, uh, our agendas more important than God's agenda, our kingdom more important than God's kingdom. And that's why sometimes we need a little bit of a reality check to come out of that. Uh, you know, what if uh, a child said to their parent, uh, Mom, Dad, I've reached a higher level of enlightenment than you, and I have knowledge beyond what you have taught me and what you know, so I think I'm going to do what I want. Mom, Dad, I'm a little bit tired of listening to you and doing what you say. I think I'm going to enjoy life better if I just do what I want. That's essentially what apostasy is saying to God. Now, what does that child need? They need a reality check, right? Uh, no, child, you still don't know very much. Child, if you do what you want, here's what you're going to do. You're going to eat ice cream and cookies all day, and you're going to grow up and get diabetes. Uh, you may think you will enjoy life more, but in the end, you will end up harming yourself and perhaps even killing yourself. So child, let me give you a little bit of a reality check. I'm your parent. You are my child. I have a job. I have money. You don't. <laughs> I can give you food. I can give you toys. Or I can take it away. The best thing for that child is what? Get a little bit of a reality check. Because they are not in a place to be autonomous beings at that point. Likewise, for a community that is tempted to, again, strong language, trample underfoot the Son of God, profane the blood of the covenant, outrage the spirit of grace. You know what they need? Part of what they need, not entirely what they need, but part of what they need is they need a warning. A warning that gives them a reality check if you decide to reject God, to reject the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, to reject the covenant of the blood, to outrage the Holy Spirit, what the Gospels will call blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, then you will fall under the judgment of God. So be warned, right? Be warned. And of course, the intention as a parent should be for a child, I think the intention of these words is not to condemn them, but to lead them along the right path so that they can experience the fullness of joy in being in Christ. So that's the second part. The last part, uh, it ends with an encouragement. And I think if you kind of end with a, uh, a warning and there is no encouragement, then it does come off a little bit uh, harsh. But the author also gives an encouragement, and the encouragement comes in the form of recollection. 
The author says this, recall the former days when you endured struggles. Recall the former days when you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. And let me exhaust this parent analogy or framework that I've been using for the entire message. It would be as if a parent would say, remember when you were tired the other day and you were able to control yourself a little bit and not completely melt down? Right? I know you, you're capable. Right? I know you're able to kind of control yourself and have a little patience. And uh, you know, remember you did that because you were looking forward to this reward of uh, a treat or ice cream at the end of the day, right? You were able to do that. I know you can do it. That's essentially what the author is doing by, by way of encouragement. Now, what purpose does it serve, right? Saying this, you've already shown you can endure suffering because you've gone through it. You've already shown the fruit of the Spirit because you had compassion on those in prison. And you still had joy even though your homes were being plundered. You were able to do that. Why? Because you knew you had a better possession and a great reward. Here's the thing. I know today you're discouraged. Nothing has changed in that respect. You still have a better possession in Christ. There is still a great reward that awaits you because of Christ. The same faith that you had before that enabled you to live like this and to respond to suffering like this and to ultimately endure you still have within you. Therefore, I know you can persevere. I know you can endure these present sufferings because I've seen you do it in the past. That's the form of the encouragement here. But there's another aspect to the encouragement that comes from a passage quoted in verses 37 and 38. And this is a quotation from the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 2 where he talks about how the righteous one shall live by faith. And I think this is probably a familiar passage to a lot of early Christians because uh, this passage is actually quoted several times in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul quotes it, I believe, in Romans and in Galatians. And I think the reason why they quoted from it is because Habakkuk was a prophet who lived during a time where uh, the world around him seemed to be crumbling in many different ways. And the people of Israel were were falling away and doing evil, that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they were under heavy pressure because the Babylonians were coming. And what he is trying to do is he is trying to encourage this remnant of people who are holding on to their, their faith. And he's encouraging them, saying, continue to live by faith. Not live because of faith, but live by it. Even under extreme pressure, even though things don't look good right now, live by faith. Because here's what's going to happen. One day God is going to vindicate you. And he is going to give you a great reward for your perseverance in the faith. Now, why does the author of Hebrews draw from Habakkuk? He's doing the same thing. He's identifying the faithful ones of Israel with this community of Hebrews. And he is saying, you all once lived by faith, which is evidenced by your former days. And in verse 39, he says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That is who you are. You are those who do not shrink back and who are destroyed, but you are those who have lived by faith. And by that faith, your souls will be preserved. And so you see, after this exhortation in the first section, after this warning in the second section, the author wants to encourage them and say, look, this is who you are. This is the gift of faith that God has given you. Now, we have these three things. We have an exhortation, we have a warning, and we have an encouragement. But if you think about it, the context of the relationship matters in terms of how these things are received, right? Um, 
You know, <coughs> when my uh, daughter, she broke her wrist this summer, and when she broke her wrist, we went to the, uh, the closest hospital, and we went to the ER, and uh, the on-call surgeon did the surgery uh, to fix her wrist. And, you know, thankfully the surgery went fine, uh, but when um, you do follow-up ah, you follow appointments, you go to the doctor who did the surgery, and my wife and I were not very happy with this doctor just in terms of his personality because he was, uh, you know, he's quite narcissistic <laughs> and uh, uh, a little bit unprofessional. So, you know, we would keep asking medical questions about our daughter, and he kind of just kept talking about like, these irrelevant topics and started talking about himself and all these things. And, you know, he knew I was a pastor, and uh, what he kept saying to us is, right, he's like, God is good, right? But in a really disingenuous way. <laughs> and I think he just said it because I was a pastor. He's like, oh, this pastor wants to hear God is good. So, hey, surgery's done. God is good, right? So we went to some follow-up appointments, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, he's very over, he was, like, very confident after he did the surgery. He's like, oh, this thing's going to heal. Six casts will be off in, like, six to eight weeks, right? At the four-week mark, we went to a follow-up appointment, gave us some bad news. He's like, uh, oh, the bone moved, and uh, your daughter's going to have to be in the cast for, like, another eight to ten weeks. So I asked him, I was like, well, okay, is there anything, like, we should be doing to, like, stabilize the bone? Is there anything we can do to facilitate healing? And uh, his response was, pray, right? <coughs> now, that's a good exhortation, right? That's a good exhortation. I should pray. And, uh, but you know what? I didn't receive it well because the context of our relationship is supposed to be doctor-patient, right? And, uh, I mean, if he was, like, genuine and if, uh, if he... <laughs> <laughs> he's being very genuine about it. I probably would have received it. But uh, I think he was just like trying to appeal to, uh, I don't know, my, my vocation or something. And I was looking for medical advice. So that exhortation when I said, oh, is there anything we can do uh, better to facilitate healing? And when he said pray, right, it didn't feel right because it wasn't the right context uh, of the relationship in terms of our relationship. Uh, the context matters in terms of how we receive exhortation, in terms of how we receive even a warning especially, but even in terms of how we receive encouragement. The context of the relationship matters. What is the context of the relationship here that determines how believers ought to receive the words in this passage, even the warning passage? We get a hint of it in verse 21 when it says, we have a great high priest over the house of God. Now this exhortation, warning, encouragement, it comes to us from one who loved us to the extent of offering his own body as a sacrifice for us. It comes from one who has offered to us forgiveness of sins and reconciled us to God himself. It comes from one who has shed his own blood on the cross in order to open a new and living way for us through the curtain so that we might draw near to the presence of God so that we might know him and have relationship with him. It comes from one who has sprinkled our hearts clean from an evil conscience and washed our bodies with pure water. These things, exhortation, warning, and encouragement comes to us from one who has shown us grace, favor, and mercy by paying a significant price on the cross. And it's, if that is a context of our relationship, how do we receive these things, these exhortations, this warning, and this encouragement? We receive it, should receive it, with a sense that we are being told from a place of love, from a place of favor, from a place where God himself and the person of Jesus Christ does not want to see us 
fall under condemnation and judgment. The last thing he desires. Now, this is a sobering passage in many ways, and I think it's sobering because I'm pretty sure all of us, if not most of us, probably know somebody who has fallen away from the faith, right? Uh, and people fall away from the faith for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, it could be issues related to, uh, especially in our culture, issues related to sex and sexuality. It could be uh, sexual abuse in the church. It could be because of uh, adultery or personal trauma or divorce, right? These are probably some common reasons why people might fall away from the faith. And other people, they just kind of gradually fall away because they get busy pursuing other things in life and uh, Jesus is, becomes less and less of a priority. You know, I've talked to several pastors who used to do youth ministry in the past and oftentimes they lament. They lament because they, uh, they think about their former students and how many of them are still walking with the Lord and how many of them are no longer uh, walking with Jesus and uh, not a part of church. And, you know, it's, it's a really sad thing to hear. And it's something that I think will grieve any person who has true care and love uh, for, for another person. But here's the thing. We're not exempt from it either. Even though I'm a pastor, I'm not exempt from it either. Uh, any one of us can become like this. Right? And again, if you're of the reform mindset, uh, I don't think this contradicts that reform doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Uh, but at least on a earthly level, on a human level, any of us can fall away, right? Uh, you know, I think two weeks ago, I don't know how many of you are familiar with like Christian authors and stuff, but there was this pastor who wrote this really popular book back in the day and pastored this really large church. And uh, two weeks ago, he announced he's no longer a Christian. And people are shocked. Whoa, I can't believe this guy says he's no longer a Christian. Uh, you know, Christian musicians say they're no longer a Christian. Uh, you know, it could be seminary professors fall away. It has nothing to do with how much you know about the Bible. It has nothing to do with whether you consider yourself to be a good moral person. Um, and that's why I think, even though this may not apply to all of us today, these things written in this passage are something that it's important to hear every once in a while. Uh, I think we all need that reality check. Friends, you need to be drawing near to the Lord. Make sure you're spending time in devotion and prayer and cultivating your relationship with God. Make sure you're coming together uh, in community and on Sundays to, to worship God and to preserve uh, your faith. Make sure you're, you're holding fast to the things that you confess to be your hope uh, because there's a warning that if you don't do these things and if you fall away and if you deliberately reject uh, the living God, um, the end, result, consequence is not good. But here's, I think, the encouragement for all of you who are here today. And I do mean specifically all of you who, who are here today. Uh, you're here, and it's, it's a good thing. Uh, you're here because there's something in your heart, something genuine in your faith. Uh, you've been coming on Sundays and worshiping, and even though some Sundays are better than others, and maybe you go through seasons where you, you don't feel really connected to the Lord, but still you, you come and you gather and you worship, 
that has, I think, an effect, a spiritual effect in terms of at least preserving your faith and shaping your desires. And so uh, all of us, uh, no matter who you are, and myself included, uh, should take these words pretty uh, seriously and, and take it to heart because the last thing we would want of anybody is what the author of Hebrews says um, in terms of falling under the fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Praise be to God. He's given us Christ. And he's given us a way away from that, a way to salvation, a way to joy, a way to love. Let's pray together.